and welcome to episode 8 of the Steps Minicast with Simon Longfellow and Marcus De Silva. Today we have good news and bad news, I'm afraid. The bad news is that we've taken the decision to temporarily suspend the monthly full Steps to Investing podcast as getting the microphone in front of lockdown fund managers during the crisis is proving pretty hard. The good news is that we've decided to enhance this, the weekly minicast, with a new section, The Big Investment. This will look at the different fund groupings such as geographies, sectors or specialisms and then assess some of the investment options available there by way of offering some examples. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It should be good. But first, let's uh, do our weekly review of the investment news. I talked a little bit about the impact of the crisis on companies' ability to pay dividends in last week's show. There's some new data out, isn't there? Yes, that's right. Link Group, who are an investment administrator, have calculated that £52 billion of company dividends are at risk in 2020. And they're saying that dividend payments from UK companies will fall as much as 53% this year. And that's including the payments from the first three months of the year that have already been made. Well, that's a big number. Is it really that bad? Well, it's worth saying that this is their worst case scenario model, but it is based on the fact that already 40% of UK companies have cancelled their dividends. So companies like HSBC, Lloyds, Direct Line, Aviva, Standard Chartered. And when you add all of that up, it comes to a staggering £28.2 billion. Link have calculated that there's another £24 billion still at risk of being cut. So why are companies doing this? Well, two reasons, really. One is that they're being compelled to do so. Do so. so the government has said to the banks that you must not pay a dividend as you need to conserve the cash and so you can continue to make loans to customers who will need them during the crisis. And the second reason is that although other companies aren't being ordered to cut dividends... They just think it's prudent, a prudent move. Uh, we don't know how long this crisis is going to last, and we don't know how quickly companies will recover when it's over. Yeah, and there's a political angle to this, isn't there, as well? Well, yes, I think there is. Um, from what I've read, it looks like some companies who are actually well-placed to weather the storm have actually cut their dividends too. And they've done so because they think it doesn't look great to be paying out money to shareholders when the nation is suffering and people are losing their livelihoods and their jobs. Right. So what does this mean for investors? Well, it's potentially a huge impact for investors who rely on income from UK companies, especially those who use these dividends to pay their bills. It also means that people who use dividends as a means to buy more shares in the companies they hold won't be able to do that, which when share prices are are this low relative to recent history, it's a potential missed opportunity to buy shares at a relatively discounted price. In the end, though, this is a very fine balance between being sensible and conserving enough cash to survive as a company 
and meeting the short-term needs of shareholders. But we've had what news this week, haven't we, that, that one particular company is bucking that trend? Yes, that's right. And this is actually one of the very few companies I've invested in directly myself in the past, the supermarket giant Tesco. Uh, they announced on Wednesday this week that they would go ahead and pay shareholders 6.5p per share. That's £635 million in total for their final dividend. Why is this significant? Uh, Two reasons, really. Firstly, because they've decided to pay a dividend at all uh, in the context of the remarks I made earlier about companies coming under pressure to be seen to be doing the right thing. Uh, Dave Lewis, who is the chief executive of Tesco, said that he had to take into account the needs of investors and pensioners when making the decision and felt that based on the company's performance up to their financial year end in February just gone, they'd made good progress and had strong financial performance uh, enabling them to make the payment. Okay, what's the second? Well, that's what surprised people. It's the scale of the increase of this dividend. Uh, Tesco normally pays their dividends twice a year. They pay what's called an interim and then a final dividend. In total, in 2018, the interim and the final came to 5.77p for every share that you held. For the 2019 financial year, that payment is now 9.15p per share. So that's an increase of almost 60%. And over that period, the share price has gone from around the £2 mark to now around the £2.50 mark. So shareholders have received a kind of double benefit, really. Although, of course, as with all share prices, it was never a straight line from point A to point B. Okay, Marcus, so what have you been uh, looking at this week? Yeah, so I've been looking at an announcement from the Bank of England and the government so obviously the the government's under its finances are under quite a lot of pressure as it has committed to supporting businesses and households to get them through this terrible pandemic caused by coronavirus and we've just had an announcement that the bank of england and the government have come to a new financing arrangement to help the government out with this cash flow problem how does it work so the bank of england has already committed to helping the government out by supporting the bonds that it issues. So the government, the UK government can issue debt, just like companies can. Um, uh, UK government debt is called gilts. And um, currently, the Bank of England had already said, look, we're going to buy 200 billion of your gilts in the markets as and when you issue them in order to, to support uh, th- their financing and, and their issuing of debt. Now they're going one step further um, by directly financing the government. So they have this, the the government have a bank account with the Bank of England. It's called the Ways and Means Facility. And it's a bit of a historical hangover from when the bank wasn't independent. And this account was used to manage the government's daily liquidity needs, its cash flow needs. Now the Bank of England is is dependent. It, the government have the debt management office, which deals with all of its financing needs. Um, and this, but this ways and means facility, this account is still there as a bit of an emergency fund with three hundred seventy million. Now, what the Bank of England are going to do is print money 
in order for the government just to be to draw cash straight out of this account. So the Bank of England is just putting money into a government's bank account for it to draw on in order to manage their cash flow on a short term basis. Okay, and why is this notable? It's notable because this is called monetary financing and history tells us that this can be dangerous because it can lead to hyperinflation. Um, you know, and actually you can imagine it, you know, it's a very cushy arrangement, isn't it, where your central bank is just printing money so that you can then use it to buy things. Um, eventually, that money just doesn't mean anything. Um, and we've history has shown this in Zimbabwe, but, you know, you go back further. If you look at Germany post-First World War, the Weimar Republic, they had terrible problems with hyperinflation for that reason. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, seems to understand this. Earlier in the week, he'd penned an article in the FT saying that he didn't really want to support that. It now seems that he does. Um, but he's, he's also insisting now that it's a temporary measure. OK, right. You are. Well, next up, the murky world of quantitative hedge funds. Um, go on, then. You can explain this without any jargon, I'm sure. Yeah, this world really fascinates me. This funds fascinate me. It's a very specialised side of the industry and it sort of evokes those colourful, egotistical characters like Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. Um, as the name implies, hedge fund, they were originally designed to enable the investment managers of them to short stocks as well as go long. So when you go long, you're hoping to profit from from rise, you know, rises in value from prices going up. Shorting enables you to profit from falls in value. And by blending the two um, ways of, of, of initiating a position together, then hedge fund managers were aiming to produce returns in any market conditions up or down. That grouping, particularly over the past 20 years, has expanded massively to really mean any kind of highly specialized strategy that's aiming for high levels of return in up or down markets but subsequently you're having to take more risk um, because of things like higher volatility etc and are therefore now generally not available to retail investors like you and me it, it's really professional investors you have to be professional investors to get into them and the ways in which they do this is using strategies such as using very specialised financial instruments like derivatives in a certain way, or by the investor being very active on, you know, taking big positions in companies and getting a, a role on the board and then forcing change through the board. That's shareholder activism. Or you can use computer models known as quants. So we're looking at the quants here. Uh, what are they and who are the best known? So what quants do is they use historical data um, uh, analysed by uber brains like um, you know PhD scientists etc, and uh, they identify complex trends and buying signals, and then make loads of small tiny trades, thousands even millions of trades, and all those tiny little profits can add up to be quite a lot, and the one that's really well known for this is Renaissance Technology in the US founded by Jim Simons, an ex-Cold War codebreaker. Isn't one of Rentec's funds the best performing in the world? Yeah, it's it, Rentec's uh, first ever fund launched in 1988, the Medallion Fund, probably keeps every single exec in Wall Street scratching their heads. They just refer to it as the money printer. And that's because since, if you look at the 20-year period, between 1988 and 2018, so we looked at two decades there, 
then its returns would have been it would have averaged 66% per year. Uh, and that's including the dot-com crash and the global financial crisis. Which, to put into context, if I'd put £100 in it in 1988, 20 years later, I would have had £2.2 million. Pounds. So it is extraordinary by a long way. And it's why its founder, Jim Simons, is a billionaire worth about £20 billion or so. And how have they done recently? Interestingly, the two... So that fund, the Medallion Fund, has been closed to outside investors for years. It's only its own employees are allowed into it. But it does have the Institutional Equities Fund and the Diversified Alpha. And these are down 17 and 13% respectively for the quarter, which is quite off considering what they normally do. Um, and I think it kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, a lot of rules are being chucked out with this extraordinary period of time, really, in markets. Markets are very rational, they're very emotionally driven. Um, and it's breaking even the most sophisticated uh, of sophistical models from, you know, some of the world's best mathematicians. Um, uh, but interestingly, not all of them have done that. And there's other trend followers who have fared much better. So it speaks to the extraordinary period of time that we're in right now in markets. Very interesting. Okay, moving on to the new section, the big investment. As Simon mentioned earlier, we're going to be using this time to look at particular groupings of investments, so ordered by things like geography or their investment strategies, particular specialisms, and then use it to talk through some fund ideas as examples. These are not recommendations. Obviously, Simon and I do not know what your financial situation is, so I by no means see this as a recommendation. This is just to go through some ideas. Okay, so what's up first? We're going to start with Europe. A lot of our listeners will have their investments in the UK. They will be quite exposed here because it's not just your investments here. You've obviously got a house here, maybe, or you've got cars here. There's all sorts of assets that you have here in the UK. So when you start to look further afield to diversify, Europe is one of those obvious kind of first choices. Um, and why is that? Well, we understand Europe. It's close by. We're very familiar with its brands. Uh, we're very interconnected. Um, uh, well, more so until recently in terms of things like trade and politics. Um, and it has great companies, to be honest, um, which are leaders in certain areas like technology, in auto industry, in luxury goods. Um, and it's a developed economy. It trades well with the rest of the world. It has a strong rule of law. It has good governance. There's lots of, you know, you know, which when you compare it to other emerging economies, um, it's, it makes it significantly um, uh, more stable and less risky. Um, so there's lots of lots of positives about it. Um, one of the things that we would say that when you're looking at funds, um, does it contain the UK in that particular investment strategy? So you'll find a Europe, maybe ex-UK or a Europe that includes the UK. If you don't want to double up any more on your UK investments, then you might want to seek one that's ex-UK um, for, for that reason. Okay, Simon, let's first of all look at an investment trust. So, well, if we start with European uh, smaller companies, let's take a look at TR European Growth. Now, this is an investment trust. It's managed by a chap called Ollie Beckett at Janus Henderson Investors. And as the name of the trust implies, it's trying to grow the money of investors. And it does this by investing in companies based in Europe, which are usually valued at less than about a billion pounds in size. The trust is 30 years old this year, 
Ollie has been managing it since 2011, and as you might expect when investing in smaller companies, they can often be more risky than investing in big ones. They tend to go bust more often, as they are, by definition, less well-established and secure than bigger companies. What that means is that the share price of the trust tends to go up and down more sharply than it were if it were investing in these larger companies. Um, that being said, one strategy the fund manager uses to mitigate that uh, movement in the share price uh, is that it invests in a long list of companies, usually around 120. That means the effect if one of those companies goes bust is smaller. Now, one of the surprising things about TI European Growth is that although its main objective is to grow investors' money, it does also pay a dividend, which has actually increased quite sharply in recent years. Uh, last year, it paid out 22p per share, which is up from 9.5p per share just five years ago. Okay, next up is a fund, right? Yes, also known as open-ended investment companies. Um, so let's have a look at BlackRock European Dynamic Fund, which has been managed by Alistair Hibbert at BlackRock since 2008. Uh, this is a large fund, which at the end of February stood at £3.5 billion in size. Uh, and it also focuses on growing investors' money. But in contrast to TR European growth, it invests in a much shorter list of companies. So, for example, its top holding represents over 6% of the total value of the portfolio. Um, and that's an investment in luxury goods company LVMH, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago in an earlier pod. Um, other companies in its top 10 holdings that you might have heard of are Airbus, uh, Novo Nordisk, Ferrari, and all these are pretty chunky holdings as that £3.5 billion I talked about is actually only spread amongst 47 companies in total. And actually, just over 20% of the portfolio is invested in the technology sector. Okay, and finally, we're going to have a look at a passive strategy, an exchange-traded fund, also known as an ETF. Yeah, as regular listeners may recall, ETFs are different from the two investment types I've just mentioned um, because the things they invest in aren't determined by a fund manager like Ollie or Alistair. Instead, uh, an ETF is designed to track a predetermined basket of shares. So in this case, I've chosen one that really has quite a, a small basket just to demonstrate the point that actually you can get well, almost get an ETF that follows anything. Um, in this case, my example is provided by BlackRock under their iShares brand name uh, and has the rather snappy title iShares Euro Stocks Select Dividend 30 Usage ETF. Uh, what that means in English is that this is an exchange traded fund, an ETF, which tracks the top 30 companies in Europe in terms of the dividends they pay out. So unlike the other two we've just talked about, this is much more focused on income than it is on growth. And in fact, its yield currently, which is a measure of the amount of income it pays relative to the, the share price of buying 
the uh, the shares is about six and a half percent. Now, in terms of uh, who those top 30 dividend yielding companies in Europe are, there are quite a few familiar names. You'll know AXA, uh, Total, uh, Petrol, uh, Aegon, Societe Generale. Um, but there's also quite a few I didn't know. Uh, NN Group is in the top 10. They provide pensions and investment services. They're based in the Netherlands. They serve 18 countries, uh, including Europe and Japan. Uh, one thing to note about this ETF is that the charges are much lower than the investment trust and the open-ended fund I just covered. Uh, they run at 0.4%. That's the annual ongoing charges figure, or OCF. And that is pretty typical. Uh, ETFs generally tend to be lower cost than funds or investment trusts, as the running costs of those uh, ETFs tend to be lower. That's some really interesting idea. Thanks, Simon. You're welcome. Well, that completes the Steps minicast, the slightly rebooted uh, version for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. If you like what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe through your podcast channel. And we hope you join us again next week. Until then, stay safe, take care, goodbye. See you next time.